spirit of life-giving love and love-giving life, spirit of a bright winter morning where we are surrounded by beauty. The harshness of our winter reminds us that beauty is not all necessarily about things that are warm and cozy, but instead about finding that which has value in whatever our experience might be. Spirit of life and love help us to, to look within our experience through whatever joy, whatever sorrow might be there so that we might be connected in spirit to that which throughout time, all time, has been of goodness, has been of value, has been of promise and of faith, that which gives hope. Let us hold this moment together in quiet. We have three readings this morning. Our first by, is by Malcolm X. It is from a radio broadcast that he made in July 1958 on station WLIB's Voice of Radio Free America program. If it is not hate to say how the white man stole this country from the Indians, then why is it hate to teach our people how this same white man kidnapped us from the East, brought us here in chains, stripped us of our ancient culture, robbed us of all knowledge concerning our glorious history, and then made us his slaves. The white man lynched, murdered, slaughtered our fathers and brothers. He raped and ravaged our helpless women at will. Mr. Muhammad is not teaching hate. He's teaching the naked truth that these Negroes need to know, a truth so plain that only a fool would dispute it, and the Negro preachers are the quickest to prove themselves to be the biggest fools. The second reading is by Martin Luther King Jr. from the speech, Our God is Marching On, delivered on March 25, 1965 in Montgomery, Alabama, at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. I have to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, however frustrating the hour, it will not be long, because truth crushed to the earth will rise again. How long? Not long, because no lie can live forever. How long? Not long, because you shall reap what you sow. How long? Not long. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch over his own. How long? Not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. How long? Not long. Our final reading is Until You Found Pain by the 13th century Sufi mystic poet Rumi. A note of explanation is that the friend referenced by Rumi is a Georgian queen who was the, was the poet's patron and close confidant. Kezer, who was, most, who was also mentioned, was a great teacher to the prophet of his age, to the prophets of his age. Until you found pain, you won't reach the cure. Until you've given up life, you won't unite with the supreme soul. 
until you found fire inside yourself like the friend, you won't reach the spring of life like Kezer. It's so good to have company in the pulpit of someone who is moved by the emotion of their readings. I hate to think that I'm the only one that stands in this pulpit and cries. Welcome aboard, Cheryl. It's so good to have you here. So this morning's service is the second in a series we call February Focus Month, and our theme is the legacy of Martin and Malcolm. Last week, we explored the roots and the underpinnings of Martin's and Malcolm's experiences and their theologies, and we also raised questions about the implications of their experiences and theologies on our own. The audio and the text versions of that sermon are on our website. There are printed versions of it back in the narthex, and I recommend it to you if you were not here. One of the claims that I made last week was that the legacy of these two giants is inextricably bound together into a single contribution. And this morning we'll look further into that claim. Before we do, though, I would like to make a brief disclaimer, and that is that I suspect a good number of you are already well-versed in the histories of these two giants of social change. I imagine that there are likely several of you who know their stories as well or even far better than I. My intention in this exploration is not necessarily to teach you anything about Martin Luther King or Malcolm X that you don't already know. It's much more to look at their lives and what they've left us as a sort of renewal of what we know and to glean from their legacy a new understanding of ourselves, something about how we might want to be most intentionally in this world as a result of the fact that the two of them were here. Also, before going further, I want to address a question that was raised by someone last week, and maybe you had the same question. It is this. By drawing direct lines from the early family experiences of both Martin and Malcolm, a line which ran directly from those experiences to their theological conclusions, had I established a sort of fatalistic interpretation of their development and of human development altogether, really. Martin having grown up in a loving family environment, embracing a universalist God of love. Malcolm having grown up in an unstable family, often only a step or two ahead of the law, ending up embracing a God of vengeance. The question asks if I was suggesting that Martin and Malcolm were restricted to those understandings of the divine by their early experiences. Where is freedom of choice in such an understanding? Where is the capacity to grow and to develop? Very good questions. The answer is, I think, that Martin and Malcolm were in no way compelled to adopt the ideas of the divine, which they then eventually finally embraced. In fact, for both of them, there were years spent wandering in the wilderness, not having any particular vision of the divine or a vision of what their life paths might be. The point is that Martin and Malcolm were introduced to the world and to the universe in ways that brought them into contact with what they would each draw upon for their theological understandings and underpinnings, which they would draw upon to make sense of the world and the part that they would be called to play in the evolution of this world. We are not free, any of us, to dismiss our developmental experiences. They are the hand that we were dealt at birth. Each of us, just as Martin and Malcolm were, are free, though, to respond to those realities in ways that make sense and add meaning to our lives. 
We might choose our life path in a positive response to those experiences, or we might choose our path despite those events. It was the same for Martin and Malcolm. It was not about what had to be, it was about what could be. And in the end, it was about what was and about who these men became. So, that said, I want to describe something of the differences between them and their different approaches to negotiate America's problem on racism. By understanding their differences, we might get a clearer picture of how these differences were complementary to each other. So to begin, their differences grew out of a very particular geographical orientation. Martin was a prophet of the South. He understood the South and he recognized that he needed the sympathies and the activist support, not just of Southerners, but of Northerners, both white and black, both clergy and lay, in order to bring about the necessary changes that would cause an end to the Jim Crow practices of the South. Martin was a master collaborator. He knew that the message of the Civil Rights Movement, he knew that his message would have to be durable and compelling, but that it would also have to be framed in rhetoric and practice that would be embraced by the widest number of sympathizers. Malcolm knew things about the North that Martin could never have known. Malcolm knew that, Jim, that the Jim Crow laws of the South, laws that had established and protected segregation, blocking Southern blacks from legal entry to educational, social, political, and financial institutions, had little bearing on the plight of Northern blacks. Malcolm understood that there were no laws in place that kept Northern blacks from access to whatever the government or society had to offer. Instead, he saw that there were discreetly woven systems and practices in the North that kept the Negro in the ghetto, systems that kept blacks in black schools, if in school at all, systems that allowed justice to be unequally and disproportionately administered so that blacks paid far heavier prices for crime or for no crime at all, systems that allowed financial institutions to redline a segregation so severe that the Jim Crow laws could hardly keep pace with them. He saw that white society had taught its black brothers and sisters that they were less than, to the extent that they were even despicable. One of Malcolm's most devastating discoveries was that blacks, including himself, had internalized this lesson and had learned all too well the devastating practice of self-hatred. He saw that the black clergy of the Christian tradition had brought had bought into the mythologies of white superiority and that they were preaching a gospel that was tolerant, even accepting of those mythologies. These different geographical orientations spawned perspectives that brought about very different approaches to the work that Martin and Malcolm saw before them. So too did the differences in their religious orientations. The religious perspectives and practices of Martin were within keeping of America's Christian narrative of itself. Malcolm's religious perspectives, though, were quite outside of the image that most Americans held of their nation. Martin was raised in the lap of Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Christianity had been spoon-fed to him from before his earliest memories were formed. Christian theology became the framework upon which he would stretch the canvas of his dream for America. A loving Jesus died so that humanity could live. 
This was the message that he understood. This was the message that he preached. His deeply rooted religious call was to stretch that canvas further and broader than it had ever been stretched in the history of the country. His call was to ensure that all of humanity would enjoy the fruits of God's blessings, not only in the life to come, but in this world as well. It was a matter of people honoring and respecting the God-given worth and dignity of all other people. This perspective left no quarter for the use of violence. Martin believed that Jesus' suffering on the cross was an act of compassion for all of humanity. That was all of the evidence that he needed for his moral conviction to a nonviolent struggle for equality. Malcolm, on the other hand, had very little use for Christianity. Pie in the sky was merely a means for the white culture to maintain the status quo. When Malcolm was introduced to the teachings of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, an entirely new religious world opened up in front of him. He found that a world existed for him there that he had not imagined possibly could. I understand something of this experience. It's very much the feeling that I had upon discovering Unitarian Universalism. I didn't know that I could be religious. I didn't know that I could belong to a religious community until I discovered a religion that allowed me to make sense of what my life was actually about instead of encouraging me to make sense of someone else's idea of what my life was supposed to be about. Perhaps some of you have had similar experience. For Malcolm, it all came clear through the nation of Islam and the teachings of Elijah Muhammad like converts to so many religious traditions, Malcolm felt called to its ministry. Where Martin's preaching was about obtaining justice through universal love, Malcolm's preaching was about obtaining justice through learning to love oneself. White society was irrelevant to Malcolm's message of redemption through allegiance to Allah, who had created and who loved the black race. White society was extremely relevant, though, as the major factor in obstructing the fulfillment of Allah's love. Where Martin's message had been predominantly prepared for white audiences, Malcolm's themes were meant for black listeners and were intended to raise up the black race from the psychological and the sociological and the theological shackles of oppression by which it had been imprisoned in the ghetto for so long. Martin's sermons to white America were designed to support the pastoral needs of a society in the midst of great social change. Malcolm's sermons to black Americans were the prophetic call to that very same justice. It's in this homiletic balance of their messages between the pastoral and the prophetic that we can begin to sense the fibers that bind their shared legacy. On one side of the equation, the principal religion of the culture, Christianity, was being preached by Martin Luther King. Granted, it was an expanded version of what had been previously understood by white society as the Christian message, but still, it was the predominant religious message of the culture. On the other side, Malcolm's religion was quite foreign to the American narrative. For most Americans of the 1950s and 60s, Islam was something of an, exo- of an exotic religious tradition that was practiced in a far part, a far corner of the world. As it was led by Malcolm X and practiced by black nationalists, though, it very quickly lost whatever appeal it had found in naivete. 
And so again, together, Martin and Malcolm created a sort of yin and yang of a religious perspective that moved the American religious psyche off of the racist dime that it had been stuck on for such a long time. At the very core of their combined legacy is a sort of complementary balance between their messages that allowed for any progress in America's problem with racism. Martin had an unwavering commitment to nonviolence. At the beginning of the movement, even with that commitment to nonviolence, at the beginning of the movement, even that message gained very little traction within the white culture. Who was this uppity Negro from Georgia acting as the conscience of America? Martin Luther King was seen as a troublemaking agitator who should be just simply made to go away. Few people realized at the time, and perhaps even still, how much the strident militancy of Malcolm X made the protestations of Martin Luther King more palatable. I believe it is quite likely that, had it not been for the rise of black power and black self-determination, had it not been for Malcolm X, Martin Luther King would have continued to be written off as a fanatic, and the civil rights movement would have never made the gains that it did. Malcolm's militant demands for separation made Martin's nonviolent quest for civil rights look so much more reasonable, especially within the eyes of the white liberals of the country. There's another question that was asked last week that might be well for us to address, and that is, how is it possible for people of religious conviction such as ourselves, how is it possible to tolerate the message of violence that was preached by Malcolm X? The truth is, we don't need to tolerate it. We need to understand it. Malcolm never promoted violence for the sake of violence. His claim was that for centuries, the white culture had wrought devastating violence on the black community. His claim was that blacks needed to stand up for themselves in self-defense. Allah of Islam is very closely related to the Hebrew God of the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and all of that sort of thing. It's interesting to note that even though he talked about revolution a lot, Malcolm never actually led or even participated in any riots or any significant civil disturbances. After his conversion to Islam, he never participated in violence of any kind. I personally believe that he did not want violence. What he wanted was to put the predominant white culture on notice that their violence would no longer be tolerated in the black community. And even more than that, he, what he wanted was for blacks to learn to love themselves. And this message was likely Malcolm's greatest gift to the movement altogether. So we might ask, was his rhetoric over the top? And the answer is yes, of course it was. Very often it was way over the top. But he did get his point across. And more, for us to dismiss Malcolm's rhetoric of violence is no grounds for dismissing his social criticism or assessment. Those were spot on. In their public lives, Martin and Malcolm had to be very careful in the way that they embraced one another, embraced each other's ideologies, or each other's movements for that matter. It was not politically savvy for either of them to cotton much to the other side. We'll go into the personal side of their relationship in a moment, but there is good reason to think that, despite oratory to the contrary, the two men long held respect and appreciation for one another. For Martin's part, he was not only the figurehead of the SCLC, 
and the civil rights movement. He was the spiritual leader. He was the heart and soul of that movement. His work was dependent on a vast coalition of liberal whites and liberal and conservative blacks. His organization was enormous, and as its central figure, he was responsible for holding it all together. If Martin had been seen as tolerant or even accepting of Malcolm, he very realistically feared the loss of participation and the moral and the financial support and backing of his constituents. To a great extent, the same dynamic held true for Malcolm, although they played out in opposite directions of each other. He wouldn't have been seen as, he, he would have been seen as going soft by his constituent hardliners if he had expressed openness towards Martin or his initiatives. So there's a distinction that needs to be made. I suspect that a number of you are waiting to hear this distinction. There's a distinction that needs to be made before Malcolm split with Elijah Muhammad and the time that Malcolm began acting on his own after he left the nation of Islam. Prior to that split, Malcolm was at liberty to say only what was sanctioned by Elijah Muhammad. Most often that didn't matter because the two of them were very much in agreement on their opposition to integration. It's not necessary for us to go into the details that produced the split between those two men, only to recognize that in order for Malcolm to maintain his integrity, he felt that he had to branch out on his own. After the division, at least for some significant amount of time, Malcolm maintained his public criticism of Martin's work. And again, the fear of losing his militant supporters was very strong. So this, this brings us to a moment of transformation in the relationship between the two men. It was a transformation that unfortunately would never ripen into its fullness. As the two men grew into their ministries, they both began to see things within expanding perspectives. Martin was transformed by our nation's experience in the Vietnam War. Through it, he came to see considerable truth in what Malcolm had been preaching all along, primarily that integration was not a final solution to racism. He saw that America's oppression of the black race here at home was directly related to the country's racism and oppression throughout the world. He saw that people struggling for the same rights were being pitted against one another for the economic benefit of others. He came to see that there was a great need for an affirmation of black self-esteem. And more, he came to see the need for the oppressed of our country and the world to unite in a common political struggle for justice. Malcolm was transformed as well, his through his trip to Mecca. He spoke of the experience as a spiritual rebirth that revolutionized his attitude towards white people. In his autobiography, he wrote, What I have seen and experienced has forced me to rearrange much of my thought patterns previously held and to toss aside some of my previous conclusions. Never before have I witnessed such overwhelming spirit of true brotherhood as is practiced by people here in this ancient holy land. They were of all colors, from blue-eyed blondes to black-skinned Africans, but we were all participating in the same ritual, displaying the same spirit of unity and brotherhood that my experiences in America had led me to believe could never exist between white and non-white. 
he'd begun to see, as Martin had, that the major race we all belong to is the human race. By the end of their lives, at the age of 39, they were both 39, though they occurred four years apart, Martin and Malcolm had drifted steadily in each other's direction. They were both aware of that transition. Both had begun to see the role that the other had played in their own ministry. Both had begun to see the need that love and justice held for them to work together. Only weeks before his death, Malcolm commented to Coretta Scott King that he hoped Martin understood that Malcolm had his back. The two men had scheduled a private meeting for Tuesday, February 23, 1965. There had been one public meeting of them before that, but there had been numerous attempts for a private meeting that had not occurred. This would have been the first. Malcolm was assassinated two days earlier on Sunday evening, February 21st. That week, Martin wrote to Malcolm's widow, Betty Shabazz, while we did not always see eye to eye, he said, on methods to solve the race problem, I always had a deep affection for Malcolm and felt that he had the great ability to put his finger on the existence and the root of the problem. And then, of course, Martin was assassinated himself on April 4th, 1968. We need only look around us in our community, in our country, in the world, to see that the work of these two giants of social change was left far from done, to see that it was left for us to complete. This is part of the legacy that they have left us. Racism persists. Oppression exists. We are asked by the lives of those two giants, not what we are willing to die for, but what we are willing to live for. I'll conclude for today with the same questions we ended last week. How do our religious values and perspectives, born of our own and our cultural experiences, encourage us to see our parts in furthering the dream and in ending the nightmare? We might consider just what we place our faith in, as in what is it that we hold as the source of what we value most in our lives and in our world? And then in in what way does our faith call upon us to help create the beloved community, the community where all people are not only created equal, but are truly equal beneficiaries of the justice and the bounty available in a land and in a world as blessed as ours? What do our lives call upon us to be? And what do our lives call upon us to do. Amen. Our closing words are by Malcolm X. In all our deeds, the proper value and respect for time determines success or failure. So in our quest to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, in our quest to affirm and promote the interdependent web of existence of which we are a part, let us remember the proper value and respect for time will determine our success.